You're listening to the Scottsdale Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scottsdale Baptist Church, visit our website at scottsdale.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, thank you very much. Uh, As Pastor Phil said, I've had the privilege of being on staff for a little while, and recently I've come on as our pastor of college ministry and and as small groups, and uh, one of the greatest joys uh, that the Lord has blessed me with is being able to speak God's word, uh, to read it, be able to understand it, study it, and then uh, proclaim it uh, in public to other people. And so I get to do that on a regular basis in our college ministry, uh, but it's a privilege and a joy to be with you this morning and have that opportunity. It's a joy knowing that you guys are joining us uh, live online throughout the week and even in our Crosspoint Center as well. So thank you uh, for being with us in those ways as well. If you've been here for any amount of time, Matt actually said it earlier, you know our vision, uh, and I'm going to say our vision statement at Scotts Hill, and then you're going to say it with me if you know it. And so here we go. Ready? Our vision at Scotts Hill is that we join God in his work of transforming lives. That was okay. But now that I just said it clearly, we're going to do it again, and everyone will participate. All right. Our vision at Scotts Hill is that we would join God, there we go, in his work of transforming lives. Right. And so as I thought about our vision and our message here this morning, I looked at the different ways that people are transformed, the different ways that things are transformed in this world that God reigns over and rules over. And the first one that came to my mind was something called metamorphosis, transformation by metamorphosis uh, that we learned in school, many of us, and that is that of the caterpillar. We have the caterpillar, this uh, uh, fuzzy looking worm thing, uh, which isn't that beautiful. If you think it's beautiful, then to each his own, but they got these fuzzy looking worm things and they go in a cocoon, which is even uglier. And then they come out as these precious and delicate butterflies. It reminds me of uh, a movie called A Bug's Life. It's like an old Pixar film where this big old worm uh, goes into his cocoon and he comes out and he looks basically, caterpillar, not worm, he looks basically the exact same except he has two little wings and he's like, I'm a beautiful, beautiful butterfly. Uh, That doesn't really you don't have that pictured here, but it's just, it's what pops into my head. It's hilarious. All right. So we have this. And then another one that's probably well known is that of the tadpole. We have these little things. They start out these, these little swimmers and they're all aquatic and then they grow legs and they lose their tail and they get arms and they become amphibious and they go from aquatic animals to, to land animals. And it's a crazy transformation that, that the Lord reigns over uh, called metamorphosis. But there's another transformation that the Lord reigns over, a more important one, and that's ones that happen in the lives of people. And in particular, I think uh, of of a guy I know well who grew up in the church uh, ever since he was born. His family moved a lot. They moved like six or seven times before uh, before he was even in the third grade. Uh, But they always were faithful to find a church wherever they went. They found, they were in the United Methodist denomination and wherever they went, they would always, they'd always find a church home. And so he grew up in the church, this boy. He was, he was there on Sunday morning when it was open. He was there on Sunday nights when it was open. He was there on Wednesday nights. When they had potlucks, he was there. When they had fundraisers for country ham or chicken and dumplings, he was there. He was serving. He was always around the church. And when he was about 12 or 13, somewhere around that age, the church put on a class where they would teach you the, 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 the doctrines of the faith, how in church history, how they came from the early church and progressed in doctrine through this denomination. And then at the end of the class, 
they would share the gospel message with you and they would ask you if you wanted to, to be a believer. Is this something that you agree with? Is this something that you believe the truth in the gospel? And this young boy at the time, he had no reason to not believe it. Nothing particularly offended him. Nothing was particularly outlandish to him. And so he understood the assignment. He knew what was expected. And so he said, yeah, I believe that. And so in the coming weeks, he got up in front of the church and the pastor dipped his fingers in water and he sprinkled them. And he said, now you are baptized into the family of God. You're baptized into, into the faith. You are, you are a Christian. You're a Christian brother. And so he grew up around the church. He grew up uh, from, from that moment, 13, maybe freshman in, in high school. He grew up the rest of his high school days pretty much looking like any other Christian would look, pretty much acting like any other Christian would act. He realized, he understood that if he obeyed the moral principles of scripture, then people, number one, thought he was a believer, and number two, they he, get, he, got, uh, he didn't get in trouble. He, he stayed out of trouble. There weren't the consequences that comes with lying and cheating and, and stealing and all those other kinds of things. And so for whatever reason, he would obey the, the moral principles of scripture. He, got, he was a kid, so he got grounded a couple times, but, but by and large, uh, he looked and he lived the life that any other believer would live. But then he went to college. They went off to his university days, and what he realized was that those, those things that were once consequential in his life didn't really have the same consequences. The, the line of, of morality, he was able to step over, and so his flesh took over a more prominent role in his life. She was the only role that was there in his life. And so he began to sin a little bit, a little bit more and realized that there weren't really those, those consequences that, that he once knew. However, he never really left the church. He stayed around the church. In fact, he was serving in one church and he was loosely involved in Christian community. And he didn't have a regular quiet time, but for some reason, when he was like 20 years old, he was reading scripture and he came across a Bible verse, chapter 26 of chapter, or verse 26 of chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, where it says that if you go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins, but an expectation of judgment and a fire that will consume the adversaries. And when he read that, his whole world stopped because he realized two massive things in his life. When he read that, what he realized was one, that he really needed a savior. He says, if you go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, he said, that's me. I have premeditatively sinned after having heard the message of the gospel. So, so I need a savior. It's clear to me. But also it says, if, that, if that's you, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins. And so he was afraid and he was scared. He realized two things. He realized, he realized his need for a savior, but at the same time, because of his misunderstanding of the text, he also thought that meant at this moment that he no longer had the opportunity for a savior. And so he called quickly uh, the, the small group leader of a roommate he had in college. And over the coming weeks, he, he met with this man and he, and he walked with him and he began to understand the meaning of the text, the truth of the gospel, how salvation really works in the life of a person. And he understood the calling that was put on his life. And I know this man's story well, because I am this man. That is my testimony of transformation by God's good news. 
And as we dig into our text this morning, as we continue along in our second week uh, of our For the Church series, as we finish up chapter one, we see Paul's testimony of transformation on display. And we see from our text this morning, the timeless message of transformation from sinner to saint by the gracious gospel. Transformation from sinner to saint by the gracious gospel. Now we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. We're going to look at our text right now in its entirety, and then we will break it down. If you don't have a copy of scripture, the words will be on the screen. If you do, then I encourage you to open it up. Or if you have version, you can go to events and you have all of the outline for the message right there for you. But in 1 Timothy, starting in chapter 12, God speaks through the writing of Paul. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And so the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he turns to Timothy and says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. Now, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And before we dig in, will you pray with me this morning, for me, for yourself, uh, for everyone else here in this room. Lord, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for your text. We thank you uh, that you do not leave us in ignorance and in darkness but you give us your word and you speak to us. And we ask uh, for that to be true in power this morning, that you would speak to us and that our hearts would hear you, that you would transform us uh, just as we prayed earlier, that you would transform us in power, that you would change our hearts, that we would move from one degree of glory to the next if we are a believer or from death to life so that we can be a believer. And we ask this in the name of Jesus our savior, our friend, and our brother. Amen. And this morning, again, Paul declares this truth of transformation from sinner to saint by the gracious gospel. And we find three truths and a charge from Paul's encounter with the gospel. And the first is faithful by the gracious gospel. Paul uses the testimony of his own life to encourage you and me this morning. He first says that he was declared faithful by the gracious gospel. See, what Paul recognizes that God did for him is the same thing that God does for each of his children. Just think of what Paul is, is really saying here in the text when he says that he judged him faithful, or other translations say that he considered him trustworthy. When I read that, my first, my first question is based on what? 
Based on what is Paul judged faithful? And Paul knows the same thing. Paul's asking the same question because he knew who he was. You can see that God judges Paul faithful only because God was gracious. This is why he is faithful by the gracious gospel. Paul had not earned this title of being faithful. Paul knows it. He says it in verse 13, that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Paul went around spending his time denying the truth that God sent his son into the world, denying that Jesus was the son of God, denying that he had the the power to save sins, denying that he was resurrected from the grave. And we know he was a, a persecutor of God's son. We read in Acts chapter nine, verse four, when he's on the road to Damascus and the sky breaks open and Jesus shines in bright light. Paul fall or Saul at the time falls to his knees blinded. And Jesus says these words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor of Jesus, the son of God. And he was an insolent opponent of the work of the gospel. That's the reason he was on the road to Damascus in the first place. He had heard that there were believers there, followers of the way, and he was there to rip people out of their homes and to approve of their imprisonment and their murder. Paul had not lived a faithful life. And yet, by the gracious gospel, God judged him faithful because God knew what he would do through Paul. But having judged Paul faithful, he was then able to appoint Paul to service. And notice that Paul didn't appoint himself to service. He judged me faithful. He appointed me to his service. And he laid out a life of ministry before Paul where he would go from city to city, from town to town, province to province. And he would plant churches and he would establish elders and he would raise up believers and he would baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. A life of ministry laid out before Paul, despite who he was, because God knew who he was going to be, faithful by the gracious gospel. Raise your hand if you have ever been in a job interview before. Yeah, that's what I figured, right? Pretty, Pretty much all of us have been in a job interview before. Well, I'm terrible at job interviews. In fact, I think that I've successfully, uh, waded through zero job interviews in my life. The first job interview I had was at Chuck E. Cheese in Goldsboro when I was in high school. Yep. Everyone asked, yes, I I did wear the mouse suit uh, because I did end up getting the job, but I only got the job when they called me back three weeks later, which I thought was normal at the time. It was my first job. And then I got there and about two months into my job, they said, man, if we would have known that you were this guy, that you had this personality, we would have hired you sooner. And I was like, well, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, we called everybody else on the list and they all said that they didn't want the job anymore. They, they had gotten jobs somewhere else. And so I got that first job because I was just the last breathing soul who wanted it. <laughs> My next interview was when I went to college. I went to UNCW and I applied for the gym there because I was like, I'm not working at Chuck E. Cheese. Spoiler alert, I did end up working at Chuck E. Cheese for another year and a half. But I first applied at the gym and I didn't get the job, but then I applied two years later and I did get the job this time, but this time it was only because I was dating somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody and they vouched for me. So strike two. The next interview, my last interview before, before coming to Scotts Hill was at a Christian camp here in Wilmington where they asked me uh, the gospel message. It was after I was a believer. They asked me the gospel message and I 
I couldn't even communicate it. I thought I was killing the interview up to that point, but I couldn't communicate the gospel message. I started saying some stuff about grace through faith, and then I started bumbling my, my way through other Christian words. But the man who was interviewing me stopped me. He paused the interview, and he coached me through a simple sharing of the gospel message. And then he appointed me to service in his camp where I was able to minister to kids. I was able to officially decide to pursue seminary after undergrad. Uh, and then I even met my wife there, which was pretty cool. <laughs> but here's my point. I got the, the UNCW job, not because I earned it, but because somebody else believed that I could do the job. And I got the job at the camp, not because I earned it, but I was appointed to service because the man in charge was willing to work with me. And Paul had not earned his judgment of faithfulness or trustworthiness. Paul had not earned his appointment to service in the kingdom of God, yet God's gospel is gracious and he declared Paul faithful. And it's the same for you, church. You were not faithful until you were judged faithful by the gospel of Jesus. And now you are able to work in mighty ways in God's service for God's kingdom because God is the one working through you. So Paul's life was transformed from sinner to saint by the gracious gospel. First, he was forgiven by the gracious gospel, or excuse me, faithful by the gracious gospel. The second, he received forgiveness by the gracious gospel. Paul was declared faithful despite his obvious shortcomings. And now Paul writes how he was forgiven by the gospel. Read verses 13 and 15 again. He says, but formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Now this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. See, Paul's writing breaks forth with this statement that despite all of his wrongs against God, despite all of his shortcomings and failures, he received mercy and grace. He says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. He connects two separate Greek words to say that God's grace super abounded in my life. The grace of God super abounded. And how did this happen? How did he receive God's mercy? How did he receive God's grace? How was he forgiven by the gospel? It is through the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. We're gonna go to Ephesians chapter two. And we notice the same language used here in these verses as what God is saying to us in 1 Timothy. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Mercy, grace, faith, love, all gifts that come from God, but they're found only in a relationship with Jesus. Notice again the same 
verses, but with different emphasis. We see, but God, he loved us. Alive together with Christ. It says, in Christ Jesus. Twice it says, in Christ Jesus. And then it says, it is the gift of God. So brothers and sisters, my question for you this morning is, have you, according to verse 15, fully trusted and fully accepted that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners? Your answer to that question matters. It's a matter of destiny. It's a matter of eternity. If you have done that, if you have fully trusted, if you've fully accepted the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of which you once were or still are, then the calling on your life is never to forget it. It's to lean into that truth. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, that the gospel is that in which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. But if you haven't trusted that message, if you haven't fully accepted the truth that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, then I plead with you this morning to consider it. I would beg you, in fact, this morning to consider that message. Consider the testimony of my life that you heard. Consider the testimony of Paul that we're hearing. Consider the testimony of hundreds of other people in this room that have had their lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would beg you to consider it. Come up and talk to me after the service. I'll be right here. I'll talk for as long as we need to. And if you still need more time, I'll make a meeting with you and we can continue to talk about it. There's no more important question for you to answer. So Paul was transformed from sinner to saint by the gracious gospel. He was counted faithful. He received forgiveness. And then thirdly, he was featured by the gracious gospel. Paul shares how his life was, was a feature to the world of the work of God in his life. Check out the next two verses. He says, but I received mercy for this reason. What reason? That in him, in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then it's just an overflow of thankfulness that pours out from Paul, even before the letter is finished. He says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. So what Paul was trying to tell Timothy and to us this morning and to anybody else who would ever read this letter is that God saved the greatest example of a sinner that he knew. And so he can save you too. That's what Paul is trying to communicate here. God saved the greatest example of a sinner that he knew himself. And that means that he is able to save you as well. See, some people have a difficult, difficult time recognizing that they're sinful, a difficult time recognizing that they are in need of a savior. But there are other people, maybe you this morning, who have a difficult time believing that they can be saved. They're crushed and burdened under the weight of their shame and their guilt, and they have no idea how they could possibly receive forgiveness and love or acceptance because of the sins and the wrongs that they've committed in their life. Sometimes we just need an example. 
It makes me think of school growing up. You guys in middle school and high school will understand this. Uh, I've always loved reading. I love reading books. Uh, I love buying books probably more than I love reading books. My wife has to put me on hiatuses of purchasing books because the stack gets too large before I can actually read them. But I've always loved reading books and they would give me in school, they'd give me the algebra book. They would give me the calculus book. But there was no way that I was ever gonna be able to read that book and understand algebra. There's no way I would ever read the book and understand calculus. I needed a teacher up there at the front, at the whiteboard, writing problem after problem and showing solution after solution after solution. I needed to see examples of how this actually worked. Or maybe another illustration is building things. You guys who are fathers, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Many of you know my wife is 35 weeks pregnant today. And so we will be having our first child in five weeks, give or take some amount of time. I don't know. But that means we've been preparing this nursery for the past few months. So I've been building things. I've been building bookcases and cribs and dressers and changing tables and all kinds of different things for the nursery. And I'm not too proud to admit it. I'll tell you guys right now that if I didn't have the directions with the pictures, there is no way that I would have built these things the way they ought to be built. There's no way. I need a picture. I need an example of how to go from one stage to the next. Because if I didn't, Guys, we would have a crib that looks a lot more like a cage. We would have dressers with the, with the drawers upside down. We would have bookcases face backward. It would be, real, it would be, it would be pretty, pretty bad. That baby would not be ready uh, to, to come. And, and it was the same when I was young. It was the same when I used to play with Legos and I had my Star Wars Legos, my little AT-ATs and, and my TIE Fighters and all that. If I didn't have the pictures, boy, it would look really wonky. It's the same with furniture today. The point is sometimes we just need an example for it all to click, for it all to make sense. And this is why testimonies are so important and why they're so powerful. Paul is declaring to Timothy and to everybody the incredible example of transformation by the gracious gospel in his life. And if you're here this morning as a son or a daughter of the king and you have received forgiveness by the grace and the mercy of our Lord, hear me carefully. Your life is to be an example too. You are called in your life to be an example. You're not to be concerned with maintaining some Christian image of perfection. That's only gonna hurt the acceptance of the gospel message in this world. Paul was not nearly as interested in putting on an image of perfection as he was in being an example. This is why he didn't hesitate to share his past. This is why he openly confesses who he once was as a blasphemer, a persecutor, an opponent of the gospel. Because his failures allowed other people to have hope. And you cannot be an example of hope to this world if all people see of you is a life of perfection because you hide your faults. They're just gonna think you're perfect in your own power. Live your life as an example of the powerful transformation that is only available through Jesus. If you've been transformed from sinner to saint by the gracious gospel, use your testimony. Paul knew how powerful his testimony was. Don't fail to realize how powerful your testimony is as well. And it doesn't have to be difficult, but it will take practice. So write it down, practice it in the mirror with yourself, practice it with your small group or your Christian friends. 
and then bring it out to the world. Share what your life used to be like. Share what God did in your life. Share what God is continuing to do in your life. And then tell people how they can have that same transformation. So because of the gracious gospel, Paul was judged faithful. He received forgiveness. He was featured to the world as an example of God's saving power. And then finally, he turns to Timothy and he tells him to fight. He says, fight by the gracious gospel. We see this final point in our last three verses. He finishes this section with a a charge to Timothy, his protege. And like a coach preparing his eager young fighter for the match of his life, Paul puts his imaginary arm around Timothy and he gives him a few last minute directions. He gives him a command and a caution. Command and a caution. He tells Timothy the command to wage the good warfare. He says, there are prophecies previously made about you and by them you may wage the good warfare. He says, Timothy, you have a fight on your hands. And you're going to have to fight tooth and nail. It's not going to be a lazy Sunday stroll. It's not going to be a walk in the park. You're going to have to fight for the purity of the gospel message. But Paul gives them some tools to accomplish this. And the first is outward encouragement. Paul still has his arm around him in this warm embrace. And he says, brother, I'm giving you this charge. I'm giving you this command because I know you, because I believe in you. I'm entrusting the greatest and most important task I can give somebody to you. And he uses his name, Timothy, in directness and in firmness, but also in intimacy and love as he calls him his child. I can remember my sophomore year of high school. We were playing basketball. I was on the basketball team. We were playing midway in their brand new gym. And we were up one with like less than 10 seconds to go. And I get fouled. We're in the bonus. And so uh, I go to the free throw line and the other coach is trying to get in my head. He tries to ice me. And so he calls a timeout. So I walk over to my coach and in the huddle and I can remember the words vividly that he shared. He says this, he says, after Garrett makes these two free throws, we're gonna hustle back on defense. We're gonna give them any layups that they want and we're gonna contest all threes. He says, after Garrett makes these two free throws, we're gonna get back on defense, give up any layup that they want, but we're gonna contest all their threes. But it was the beginning phrase that stopped me. He said, after Garrett makes these two free throws, Guys, I was a decent free throw shooter, but I wasn't 100%. But my coach was entertaining no other option than that I would be successful. And he was instilling confidence in me and confidence in me to my teammates. And this is Paul's sentiment here. He believed in the discipleship that he had accomplished in Timothy, and he was giving him some words of encouragement. But Timothy didn't just receive outward encouragement from Paul directly. Paul also reminds him of encouragement from God through others. He recalls words of prophecy previously made about him. Most commentators agree that this was at his ordination ceremony when he was, had his hands, hands laid over him. He was commissioned to a life of ministry and service in the kingdom of God. And other brothers had spoken over him strengths and gifts that the Lord had given Timothy. And Paul was reminding him of these things. As the fight got tough, Paul made sure that Timothy knew he had what it took and that others believed in him. But in order to wage the good warfare and fight for the gospel, it wasn't just outward encouragement he needed. There were gonna be inward qualities that Timothy must possess. 
And these inward qualities were faith and a good conscience. Faith and a good conscience. It brings us back to the verse from last week's sermon, verse five, where it says, the goal of our instruction is a pure heart and a clean conscience and a sincere faith. This is why we must fight by the gracious gospel. It is the gospel message of faith that will be his foundation and the truth of what he teaches. And it will be his clean conscience that is evidence of his faith and his Christ-like behavior. So it gives them this command, go wage a war. And at the same time, a word of caution also comes to Timothy. As the war is waged, as the fight continues, there are going to be casualties. There are going to be injuries. And two examples are given here. He gives the example of Hymenius and Alexander. Now we don't know a lot about these men, but it's clear that these men were excommunicated from the church through church discipline but that it was explicitly for the church and for the individual. It was for the health of the church and for the health of the individual. The flow of scripture seems to caution us against the searing of our conscience that could shipwreck our faith. And it, it's right of us to recognize the healthy goals for these individuals, not simply to be handed over to the realm of Satan and evil for punishment. That's not what it says. It is for instruction and teaching. It is for instruction and reconciliation that this caution is commanded. It is so that they will learn not to blaspheme. And so the calling for you, church, is the same as it was with Timothy, to fight by means of the gracious gospel. And if fear is something that you struggle with, understand that you're not alone. Timothy was timid. He was a fearful young man. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that there's not a sin that we struggle with that isn't common with man. So you're not alone, even in this room, if you, are, if you lack boldness, if you are afraid to fight and to go wage the warfare in this world. But hear me also when I say this, just because you're not alone doesn't mean it's okay. Just because you're not alone doesn't mean you're off the hook. It's not a right that you have then to be disobedient to the command of scripture for us to fight the fight for the gospel in this world. This verse I'm about to share with you has long been a, a buttress to my faith. It helped Timothy and it's found in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. It's about the spirit that is in you. God says he has not given you a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and self-control. So if you are fearful in this fight for the gospel, understand you are not alone, but also understand that that fear is not from the Lord. That fear is from the enemy. That fear is from your flesh. Remember the spirit, if you are a believer, that has been gifted to you, that lives in you, that resides in you. It is a spirit of self-control. It is a spirit of love. It is a spirit of power. Lean into that, use that, walk in that. Receive the outward encouragement and walk in the power of the gracious gospel. So as we listen to God's voice this morning, hear this from our scripture, from our text this morning, that God has not called you to salvation for the sidelines, but to transformation for the front lines. 
The calling on your life is not to remain on the sideline. It is to be on the front lines, displaying as an example the transformation that you have received. If you're a believer in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ, you have been judged faithful by the gospel. You have been appointed to service through the gospel. You have been forgiven of your sins by the gospel. And your life is called to be an example to the world as you fight for the truth of the gospel. If I could boil it down and give us three instructions for our lives from our scripture this morning, it would be this. Number one, to remember your past. Don't forget it. Don't try to hide it. Remember who you were before the love of Jesus came into your heart. Remember how you were and who you used to be before the super abounding grace of God came to be a reality in your life. Remember your past, but then praise your savior. Remember your past and let that be fuel that causes you to praise your savior, to live a life of praise and worship. You could tell in this scripture, Paul couldn't help but say that. In verse 12, he starts out by saying, I thank him. That's the whole thing. I thank God who gives me strength. And then at the end, he can't help but to say to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. He could not help but to praise his savior. You are to do that as well in your home, outwardly with your lips, in your workplaces, in your classrooms, seek opportunities to speak of the goodness in your life from the Lord. And then lastly, stand for your faith. Fight the good fight. Practice your testimony. Spend intentional time practicing the sharing of your testimony in a way that incorporates the gospel message like Paul did to be an example to the world. I've been reading this book that our student or our uh, youth kids director, Megan, gave to me. And a a passage in it, a story in it struck me. It's this boy uh, who comes from a Muslim family who's who's writing uh, basically journal entries over and over again. And he's six years old when he writes this. And he writes this of his mother. He says, here's the part that gets hard to believe. Seema, my mom, read about him, talking about Jesus, and became a Christian too. Not just a regular one who keeps it in their pocket, but she fell in love. And she wanted everybody to have what she had, to be free, to realize that in other religions, you have rules and codes and obligations to follow, to earn good things. But all you had to do with Jesus was believe he was the one who died for you. And she believed. And he says, when I tell the story in Oklahoma, this is the part where the grownups always interrupt me. And they say, okay, but why did she convert? He says, well, I don't have an answer for them. How can you explain why you believe something? So I just say what my mom says when people ask her. She looks them in the eye with the begging hope that they will hear her. And she says, because it's true. Why else would she believe it? 
It's true and it's more valuable than $7 million in gold coins and thousands of acres of Persian countryside and 10 years of education to get a medical degree and all your family and a home and the best cream puffs of Jolfa and maybe even your life. My mom would not have made that trade otherwise. If you believe it's true that there is a God and he wants you to believe in him and he sent his son to die for you, then it has to take over your life. It has to be worth more than everything else because heaven's waiting on the other side. As I read that, it struck me, number one, that it is obvious to people. If you call yourself a Christian, but you keep it in your pocket. This is a six-year-old boy who could recognize this that his mom was different because she didn't keep her faith in her pocket. And that's the calling for our lives as well. We are not to be timid. We are to understand the spirit that has been given to us, not one of fear, but one of power and love and self-control. And we're to take our faith out of our pocket and to fight with it, for it to be an example to the world of how God forgives people by a relationship with Jesus through his mercy and through his grace. So my challenge to you this week is to remember who you were before God transformed you. Praise your savior for what he has done in your life. And then take your faith out of your pocket and be an example to the world. Would you pray with me this morning as we ask the father to fix these truths into our hearts? Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the testimony of Paul that you have given us, that you've gifted us. We thank you for the work you've done in our own lives. We thank you that you are a powerful God. We thank you for the spirit that you've given us, that it is not one of fear that would cause us to be timid and to be afraid in the world, but it is one It is one that would cause us to walk in step with the spirit. We would understand that we have the power of God inside of us that allows us to show love to others in the best way possible by taking our faith out of our pocket and sharing it. I ask that you transform us according to that message this morning. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.